0: I hope that you're feeling that in the <coughs> interviews, uh, in individual or, or group interviews, and in the instructions, that uh, you're kind of being met where you are, that wherever you are in terms of what's going on in your experience is being shared and, and met. And addressed through the interviews and through the instructions, and in a way, sometimes the talk in the evening—sometimes, not always, but sometimes—that allows the talk in the evening to kind of address a bigger questions of the bigger picture, not necessarily where am I at this thing right now that I'm dealing with this or that experience. So both of those are obviously very important. This footstep this step that I'm taking right now and the terrain right here under, under my feet matters very much. But also the map, the map of the territory, the direction, etc., that also matters. And that's, uh, I would like in, to go into some of that, the map tonight, a part of the map, if you like, actually the deeper, uh, some of the deeper dimension of, of, of the map. And so, for a talk like this, in a way, there's no pressure. You can just listen uh, spaciously, as there's a spacious... uh, We're talking about bigger picture. There's no pressure. But this business of the footstep and the map is actually quite significant for us in particular in this tradition, the insight meditation tradition. As human beings, in our life... Off retreat, but particularly on retreat, we are uh, on a retreat like this, and just sit, walk, there's very little distraction. And of course, what I am confronted with most of the time is my experience. That's what I run into, that's what I meet most of the time, is my experience. The experience of uh, the inner phenomena, mind, body, and, and the experience of the immediate environment, in this case this retreat and the people on the retreat and the forum, etc. And I hope also that you feel like you're learning to meet the experience of the moment. And that's that's one of the real strengths of insight meditation, tradition and practice, is that we start right there. What's... What's going on? And then we try and meet that and we try to learn how to meet that well. So that's a real strength that rather than getting into lots of abstract stuff we're we're dealing with learning how to meet the experience. It's It's a real strength. It's also a weakness. Both. Because it might be, and actually it often is the case, we don't see the wood for the trees. We're so... Uh, dealing with this experience and then that experience and that experience, that something happens that we don't actually see the bigger picture so well. So it can be a weakness. And I know plenty of long-term practitioners, I'm talking years and years, even decades, have said to me after a while, I thought, actually, that insight meditation practice, and they hear about foundations of mindfulness, and, and I, I thought that basically, I could sum it up by just saying, kind of, be with whatever is happening. Try and open to whatever's happening and if you can feel stuff in the body, that's great. So kind of be in the body and kind of open to and be with. But that's only a part. It's only a part of it. It's a very important part. It's only a part. And something else happens that through that, and very understandable that one would have that uh, perception of things, through that a certain view gets kind of encrusted over, over time. And it's a view about reality. And we practice mindfulness. And you can see, being, being with... And things start to disentangle a little bit. Things start to calm a little bit. Uh, equanimity might come a little bit or, or a lot. All of which is great. You can also see that with the practice of mindfulness, we've been talking about it, we get this idea, oh yeah, okay, so when I'm mindful, in a way, I'm taking away the tendency to bring a story to everything and complicate everything. And this word, papancha, to proliferate, to make complicated with my story and my whole thinking about. And the very fact, uh, the very activity of mindfulness calms that and we tend to think, and this is where the view comes in, we tend to think, ah yes, then what I'm really doing in practice is I'm being with what is. I'm being with, and you may have heard these, these, these words, what is, or things as they are. And these are kind of buzzwords. I'm being with things as they are. And one gets a sense that's the kind of point, that's the point of practice. But that is not the point of practice. Is absolutely not the point of practice. The Buddha is is very, very clear in his teaching. He wants us to realize something, to understand something. Something not just about being with, but about understanding something. A couple of hundred years after the Buddha died, um, another teacher in India, uh, Nagarjuna, probably the second, after the Buddha, the most influential Buddhist teacher. um, Sometimes called the second Buddha. And in his most seminal sort of famous work, one passage, one verse says, without recourse to the ultimate truth, without arriving at the ultimate truth, nirvana, liberation, awakening, is not attained. Without arriving, without recourse to the ultimate truth, nirvana is not attained. And in the following verses he goes on saying, and because this is something quite difficult to see, the Buddha almost didn't teach, which is a famous uh, piece of the myth. So practice actually has many, many aspects. I'm talking about big picture now. Practice has many aspects, beautiful aspects. The cultivation of what is beautiful in the heart you know the beautiful qualities, the opening of the being, the uh, opening of the consciousness of the body, all of that. The journey of self-discovery—how beautiful to know ourselves and our the ways we are, the patterns, the difficulties we get into—and also the healing that comes with all of that. All this is part of practice, and and we're moving towards or deepening. An understanding, and not not an intellectual understanding, but an understanding that brings freedom. So practice is, is very wide, it's hugely wide, what's involved in practice, beautifully wide. And if we could say its deeper thrust is towards this, what Nagarjuna is calling the ultimate truth, wanting to understand, see, realize the ultimate truth of things. So sometimes, and many of you have been around a little while, and some some of you not so long, this person says, yes, I see that. And my understanding what the ultimate truth is, a person might say, is it's this ego, this ego, this self, that's the problem. And maybe you've heard something around that before, maybe you accept it, or maybe you, it makes sense to you, or maybe you haven't and you don't quite accept it. But that's often, oftentimes a sort of taken-for-granted uh, piece of knowledge for people who have been practicing for a while. Now very often when we hear something like that, ah yes, what I'm really moving towards is to somehow get rid of the self or something. And a person can pick this up and decide that the ego is bad, the self is bad, and then they find themselves catching themselves getting up to mischief and the ego puffing itself up or, or this or that. And they're sort of, in hindsight liberating themselves or just kind of tutting at the ego but i actually that's not that helpful to see it that way it doesn't uh, that way of looking doesn't really liberate anything maybe more helpful is to look and see that there is actually nothing i can find there's nothing i can point to nothing i can see when i look inside at everything that could be myself, I can't find anything continuous or permanent. And this self feels continuous and permanent. And yet when I look for it, I can't find it. And so I might conclude, well, there's no self. That would be a, a much better beginning, beginning of this journey towards ultimate truth. But really where it's going in terms of the self is an understanding that the self is illusory, it's an illusion. In other words, as human beings, we have the experience of self, we feel the self, it's the most, almost the most obvious fact of my existence, this feeling, this experience of self. It, I feel it, I experience it, and it's illusory. There's something in that. Now what I want to emphasize tonight as well is, yes, that's part of it, and what is true of the self, this illusion of self, despite its appearance and experience, is true of all things, all things. They appear, but they're illusory. And technically, in Dharma language, we say they're empty, they're empty. That's the same, same as saying they're illusory. Why is that significant? What, what, it might sound abstract, Why is that significant? Here's a quote from Nagarjuna again. Wherever there's belief that things are real, wherever there's belief that things are real, desire and hatred spring up unendingly and unwholesome views are entertained from which all disputes come. Indeed, this is the source of every view, Without it, no defilement can occur. Thus, when this is understood, all views and all afflictions vanish. When this is understood, all afflictions vanish entirely. But how may this be known? It is said that when one sees that all things are dependently produced or dependently arisen, one sees that all such things are free from birth. I'll read that line again because that's what we're going to go into a little bit. It is said that when one sees that all things are dependently produced or dependently arisen, one sees that all such things are free from birth. In other words, they're illusory. This, the supreme knower of truth, that's the Buddha, has taught. So a person might hear this and say, yeah, but I'm not that drawn to this idea of nirvana or awakening or enlightenment and and of course there's always a mix some people are attracted by that and some people really not but basically what's also being said is the more we see this and the more we understand this the more freedom there is so I don't have to think about this word nirvana or whatever it's just the more I see this the more I open to this and realize it the more freedom and the less suffering there will be in my life that's all All things, self and all objects, inner objects, emotions, thoughts, moods, uh, perceptions, and outer objects. All things. And the Buddha says in the Sutta Nipata Sarvam idamayam, all all this is illusion. All this is illusion. Not just this self, all this is illusion. We have, to, we have to actually be careful a little bit here because there are levels of teaching. There are levels of teaching. So this is obviously what we call the ultimate level of teaching and there's a conventional level of teaching. Actually, they're not even that black and white. So we have to be, be clear what level we're talking on at different times. Otherwise it gets kind of irresponsible a little bit. This emptiness teaching may not always be the appropriate teaching. In other words, here's some particular suffering and if I just come and say, to yeah, it's empty, maybe that's exactly right and maybe it's really, really not appropriate. It's not the right thing, it's not the right view, it's not the right take that needs to happen. Yeah, so there's, there's really a question of skillful means and appropriateness here. And this whole journey, it's, it's a real journey of understanding and, and something incredibly profound to, to, to uh Begin to understand this, and then and then the understanding goes deeper and deeper and deeper. It's it's a profound journey, and it doesn't almost ever happen at once. And so tonight, you know, I, I, there's not time to go into detail, So really I just want to, like I said, paint a big picture and talk more generally. And generally speaking, there are different ways of approaching or developing, entering this understanding, this realization. Uh, So just to name four right now, and they're kind of four main ones, very broadly speaking. One we touched on already a little bit is that, say, if we take the self, for example, um, when I look for it, I can't find it. Now it seems obvious, you're looking and here's Rob, or I look and there's uh, Robert, there's Catherine. It seems obvious, well, the self is there. But when I really look at whatever it is, or the microphone, I can't find it. Things are unfindable in their essence or the essence of things is unfindable so I'm going to lay out these four and I'm only going to pick one and and, uh, elaborate on it a little bit Well, that's the last one so I'm just mentioning that right now any possible place this self could be I can't find it there any possible uh, location for it or essence of it I cannot find second possibility is actually using logic This is very not popular in this tradition, but some traditions really use logic a lot. And you actually find that it's logically impossible for things to exist in the way that they so obviously seem to exist. It cannot be that way. I'm not going to go into this either, I'm just mentioning it. Sometimes people shy away from that because it feels like where there's logic, there can't be heartfulness. They are completely separate domains. They have to be. Maybe that's not true. If I'm going to the beach with friends on a sunny summer day, and we get in the car, and we're in the car on the way to the beach and the, the beach i mean the car journey maybe it's hot and it's crowded and there's certainly no sea there and there's no sand and there's no big blue sky but when i get to the beach then i have the sand and the big blue sky and the so this sometimes practice and uh, if we talk about the logic it's it's a journey but that when i Use it in practice. It liberates something. Something is released through the seeing of the emptiness, and the heart is is uh, released and opened. So I'm just mentioning that in case you run into it at different times. Third possibility is through the intuition or an intimation of, of this illusory nature of things. And sometimes it's not, definitely not about logic at all. Uh, something resonates, something speaks to one. It could be a poem, could be through another person, could be just through our own practice. We're getting a sense of some deeper dimension of existence, an intimation of it, a whisper of it, and it's speaking to the heart and opening something and opening a possibility of freedom. And we're not even quite sure what it is or how that's working, but it's calling the heart. It's calling something. That's definitely a possibility. And the fourth one, and the one I want to elaborate on a little bit tonight, is uh, seeing how things are fabricated, constructed, and concocted. Jenny touched on this a little bit the other night. And this involves understanding our meditative experience. Not just having meditation experiences, whatever they are, good ones, so-called, or bad ones, so-called, but actually understanding them. What is going on that I go through all these experiences? This is what I want to elaborate on. Because we begin to see something, if we're looking the right way, if we're asking the right questions, we begin to see something about our experience, and actually not just meditation experience. I begin to see, for instance, have you noticed, when there's some issue, when something, I'm caught with something, and I'm grappling, and there's an issue there, that in that time when there's an issue, the self-sense and the sense of the issue, the object, are magnified, solidified, made, uh, there's a, a lot of sense of separation, of the, the separate self gets built, and made very uh, intense. It's constructed, it's fabricated through my wrestling with an issue. Do you understand? Yeah. Through reactivity, the self and the object get built up, and they reinforce each other. The reactivity is... Uh, what the Buddha called uh, the seamstress, that it's stitching the two together and inflating them, pumping them up through reactivity, their appearance. Something goes on all day like that, all day, meditation or non-meditation. And if I only can look and see that that's happening... Have you also noticed, another I mean related but another way in, that the view we have of ourselves at any time, the way that I see myself and feel myself, have you seen how different that can be? It's so different, the self-view, dependent on, for instance, the mood. So when there's a lot of love in the heart, how different the self-view from when there's a lot of um, irritation, self-judgment, etc., how how much the self-view depends on perspective as well, on the assumptions we're having, on the beliefs we have. All this, assumptions, beliefs, reactivity, perspective, mind state, heart state, all this conjures a certain view of self in that moment. And we fall for it, hook, line and sinker. I believe that's me. Not to mention cultural factors uh, in terms of beliefs and assumptions, spiritual beliefs, uh, psychological, psychotherapeutic beliefs. All this is building something in reactivity. Now begin to see the way of looking matters more than anything. So the most important thing there is is the way of looking When there's a lot of mindfulness, I'm looking at things, I'm relating to things in a certain way. When there's a lot of metta, loving kindness, I'm looking, I'm relating in a certain way. When there's a lot of letting go, when the push and pull and the tussle with experience is died down, or dying down, I'm looking, I'm relating to things in a certain way. And you start to see, what a range of how I feel the self, dependent on the way of looking. And not just the self, but whatever object i'm looking at whatever situation whatever event whatever thing in or outer which is the real self which is the real one which is the real thing the real event it moves and the more i meditate the wider the range through which it moves through most uh, sublime and beautiful to quite contracted and, and difficult and solid and tormented, which is the real one. But it's not just how it moves or that it moves from this to that, and I say, well, which one's real, that one or that one or the one in the middle or that one there? It's also how much the self appears as something separate at all how much it gets built as a sense, as, as, uh, as a separate sense. Or, or the object, the perception of the thing. Not just that it moves, but its very appearance is dependent on my way of looking. It's very... Coming together as a thing is dependent on my way of looking. So the perception, the experience, the appearance of self and objects is dependent on the mind, dependent on the way of looking, the way of being with. And we say, again in technical language, we say a thing or the self is empty of independent existence. doesn't exist independent of my way of looking, of the mind. And again, why is that significant? Is this just abstract? Why, why, why am I going on about this? Because suffering depends on reality belief, as Nagarjuna said. Suffering depends on believing in the reality of self and thing, whatever thing is. It depends on that. Without that, I know it's an illusion. And, and the suffering can't stand, it has nothing to lean on. And the Buddha is saying, everything is fabricated, everything is conjured and illusory like this. Everything, 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 by the mind, by the way of looking. There is no basic reality. There is no basic way things are. It can seem like there is. It can really seem like there is. And, and uh, in practice it can seem like there is. And that's I'm saying. The more we're mindful, we let go of story. We feel like, and now I'm just with this sensation. Just as it is. I'm just with this emotion. Just as it is with this sound, etc. It seems like that. But that's only a stage in practice. There's only a stage we feel like we're contacting some sort of basic ground of reality. And it would be a huge, huge shame as practitioners and as human beings if we never get beyond that stage. And we end up just believing in this level of reality that's a given. Because mindfulness does not uh, reveal the way things are as they are. It does not, nor does equanimity. Something much more mysterious starts happening the deeper I go into these practices. Much more mysterious, much more interesting in fact. So the most fundamental fact about anything at all and the most fundamentally important fact about anything at all, any experience at all, is that it is dependent on how I'm looking, how I'm aware of it. And as you said, that means it's empty. And that's the most fundamental and fundamentally important fact about anything. So we talk, and I, all, all the teachers, we talk about what is and being with what is and opening to what is and all that. But is what is, what is? What? <laughs> there is no objective reality that we arrive at. And if you know anything about, for instance, quantum physics and the discoveries of the last century and ongoing, very similar uh, discoveries. The way we look conjures what we see at the most basic level of reality. Imagine, imagine going into a room and there's a person in the room and they're got their back on the wall in a lot of fear you just enter this room and this person is stuck there with fear and you say what on earth is going on and they say there's a wolf in the room and you look I don't think this is going to work you look at the wall and you see much too much <laughs> can we have a little technical uh, special effects <laughs> no? ok, leave it turn the light. Um, just try the bottom ones at first, Annie, if you would, please. The, the bottom ones, yeah, thanks. Okay, let's try this. Ah. It's a wolf. Mm. Okay, and this person is terrified of the wolf. Can everyone see this scary wolf? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and and you say, well, what's going on? They said, there's a wolf but I'm being with the wolf. I'm being with the wolf and I'm being with my fear and I'm practicing mindfulness and I'm being with it. And you say, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And they're not seeing their other hand. They're not seeing their other hand. They're stuck looking at the wolf. The silhouette, the hand shadow. If you're listening to this on tape, I was playing with a light and a (laughs) hand shadow and a terrifyingly realistic... uh, (laughs) Uh, impression of a wolf um, and so maybe maybe they don't see their other hand you see, they don't see the fabrication that's going on because I'm stuck looking at the wolf maybe being with this wolf and being with my process with wolf maybe equanimity comes and maybe patience comes but ultimately the suffering won't be undermined it won't be cut at the deepest level Maybe I'm with the wolf and the wolf disappears. And maybe. Could we have the lights again? (laughs) Sorry, Annie, it's a busy night for you. Okay, the wolf disappears and then. Oh, why is that not working? Okay, there you go, there we go. Yeah. Bunny rabbit comes. (laughs) Nice, bunny rabbit. There we go. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so and then bunny rabbit, oh huge relief. It's a bunny rabbit, how lovely. And 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 basically what happens is phew relief. But something has not been learnt. I haven't learnt anything. Just the next experience comes without asking how did that how is it that the wolf appeared how is it that the wolf disappeared how is it that the bunny rabbit appeared and the bunny rabbit disappeared and me or you as a person walking into that room what's the most compassionate response what's the most compassionate thing to say to this person be keep being with it or it's impermanent, or kind of, you know, well, maybe it's something releasing. And this is where we go back to this thing about appropriateness. Don't forget what I said about that. But ultimately speaking, what's the most compassionate thing? Well, you can learn to see the concocting. Learn to see the concocting. And that is the main purpose of meditation practice. The main, we we'll sort of talk about the deeper thrust is to learn to see this concocting. Now, if we if we do that, I don't know if some of you maybe had the thought, "Oh, that means it's my fault because I'm projecting this and I'm doing that." And then there can come some judgment, "Oh, you're saying suffering is my fault." Um, no, because not only is the self uh, not real enough to be found fault with, but also. This process of concoction is just what consciousness does. It's what consciousness does. It's the way it works. It's the way it works. Please remember, as I say all this, there's something about timing. When is the right time to tell this person? When is the appropriate time to share with this person and point out to them, can you see your other hand? Can you see the process that's going on? When oftentimes, as human beings, we're invested in something here. We're invested somehow in that projection, even if it's the wolf somehow. And there's all kinds of um, reasons for being invested. Many possible reasons. Sometimes it's to do with um, we're attached to a certain identity of a victim or a hero who bravely stands up to the wolf, goes through all that, or... Um, attached to assumptions about the causes of suffering, or or w- what deep work means, or what reality is. There's all kinds of reasons. And maybe, in pointing out, a person gets angry. A person gets angry. Uh, they're maybe not ready. Not ready to realize what's happening with the other hand. <clears throat> but in the long run, in the big picture, there's something about fullness of questioning here there's something about fearlessness and there's something about integrity uh, and, and that whole thing and the balance of that that could be easily a whole talk but as I said I'm just talking generally tonight so even then hearing that and seeing the little uh, you know, projection of the wolf and all that we say yeah okay I kind of get that and please relate this to your own experience so where can you see this happening it's so not just the deep end, but this happens at every level of, of uh, meditation, practice, and life. And we so, say, yeah, okay, I can kind of see that in certain situations. But so often there's an assumption. There's an assumption, yeah, I see that wolf is constructed, that's, you know, that's easy. And I see this pattern that I have, that I'm constructing something. But behind it, we assume, very almost always, in fact always, we assume something is not constructed. That's constructed, but there's something that's not constructed. There's some simple, direct contact with basic reality that's possible. So it's not only papancha that's fabricated, that's conjured. Or we think, it's only papancha, it's only when I go off in a loop. the Buddha is saying more than that. His meaning of papancha is much broader than we tend to uh, talk about. He means everything, everything. And like I said, it can seem like we contact a basic reality. It's only a stage. So, everything, all experiences, fabricated, conjured, concocted, whatever word we want to use, and the mind that conjures, fabricates, concocts, that also is an illusion. There's no basis to this illusion. Sarvam idam mayam, all this is an illusion. So the Buddha has a, a sutta. And I'll paraphrase a bit and then read. He's basically saying, if you look at anything, anything that makes up what we could take to be ourselves, or anything that makes up anything in reality at all, if you look at it deeply enough and closely enough, you see it's void of essence, it's empty of essence. There's nothing really there. So he says, materiality, you look deeply and it's like a mass of foam. Like just foam, it's just nothing. Materiality, body and this solid reality. Vedana, this thing that we talked about, he says it's like an airy bubble. Perception, the experience of seeing things and this and that. He said, perception is like a mirage. You know, that vision that's in the desert, it's an illusory vision. Formations, the patterns that we have, particular difficulties or moods or thoughts or intentions, mental formations, are like a plantain tree. We probably don't understand that one. If you peel the bark of a plantain tree, you don't get to anything solid inside. I look to find the reality, like I said earlier, and there's nothing there. And consciousness, he says, is a magic show. Consciousness is a magic show Uh, A juggler's trick, entirely. What does this mean? It means, uh, if we say consciousness, it means the whole process of being conscious. The whole process of knowing anything. Knowing anything, of sensing anything, is an illusion, is is a magic trick. He's gone through everything that makes up what we call reality in ourselves. Everything, mental, physical, everything. And he said, in one way or another, it's basically an illusion. A magic trick. It's a beautiful image. A a magician's conjuring. The totality of everything and experience. And even things, and this gets elaborated more in the later teachings in the Mahayana, even things like time, which take that as a given. Einstein said, uh, time, what did he say? He said, Time is nothing but a stubbornly persistent illusion. This is also something, even the now seems so basic. So when the Buddha talks about uh, avidya, it usually gets translated as ignorance or delusion. What he really means at root is what we could call Realism. The, the belief, the feeling, the intuition that things are real—that's what he means when he when he means when he talk, at the at the root level. That's what he means by delusion. It's realism, and that realism is a feeling and a sense we have that's woven into perception. In other words, I don't intellectually think such and such is real. I feel it's real without even thinking anything. The way I see it is as real. And we have a compulsion for realism. In other words, I find it very hard to let go of this sense and this belief that things are real, and on that stands suffering. On this compulsion of realism, I keep coming back like a magnet to wanting things to be real and believing they're real, and on that rests all suffering, all suffering. So. That's ignorance and delusion, and in contrast there's wisdom or awakening, and that is this realizing or understanding of the emptiness of the illusory nature. And that's what we could say, it's the opposite of common sense. Common sense feels like everything is real, that's common sense. Wisdom is uncommon sense, uncommon sense. As human beings, like I said, we have this compulsion. So we want to leave something real. We want something to be real. We find it very hard. We want something as ground. And that's a kind of clinging, to cling to something as ground. Not trusting the freedom and the bliss of groundlessness, of nothing being real. And that complete openness of perspective and movement in a way that that allows. And what is that? Either it's materiality. I can't let go of a kind of scientific materialist view of material reality being undeniably real, everything being based on that. Or maybe a person can't let go of awareness or consciousness as being real, or presence, or being, or the flow of things, or whatever. Or the web of conditions or the now. Something, something, we have this tendency to want to grasp to some some way of looking, is this is it, this is this is it. And we try to say, well, this thing, whatever it is, awareness or whatever, that's not a thing, so it doesn't really count what you're saying. But it's still in the realm of concept and in the realm of an experience that is based on concept. Either explicitly or implicitly we believe that things have independent existence and I'll believe that about whatever this is that I'm clinging to. That they're objective somehow, independent that they even exist in time. So this awareness that I believe in if I believe that it exists in time I'm giving it a reality it doesn't have. The now, whatever it is To see that everything is empty is something amazingly beautiful. And I know, I know that saying all this is landing in very different places. And Some people feel amazed and the heart is really touched and some people are horrified by what's being said and some people are just not interested. And it it has to land in all those different places. But eventually there's something incredibly beautiful of of what... uh, opens up in seeing this. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Everything is empty. Everything is illusion. Hallelujah, this is a magic world. Hallelujah. So, and now I'm talking to the very experienced practitioners in the room. Where's your last fortress? Where's the last bastion of reality for you? Where are you trying to put it? Some notion of this is it, in awareness, in being, in emptiness as something real, in Buddha nature, in the deathless and the unfabricated. Saraha was a a famous Buddhist tantric adept and, 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 and yogi, and I think he's from the 11th century in India, but I'm not sure. The self is void, empty. The self is void, the world is void. Heaven, earth, and the space between are void. In this bliss, there is neither virtue nor sin, neither good nor bad. So there's a... There's a phrase the Buddha used. I'm not sure how much he used it, but but it, he used it, and it's become very influential over millennia, really. And in, in the Pali i say in Pali, yata bhuta jnana dasana. And you can translate it something like knowledge and vision and then the important part is the yata bhuta. And it usually gets translated as knowledge and vision of things as they are. But the part that has got tr- kind of yanked out of that is is the things as they are. And turned into an idea that there is some basic reality and the point of practice is to be with that basic reality through mindfulness, through stripping away uh, projection. As I said, at best, that can only be part of my practice approach and a stage that I go through. What the Buddha, I would say, really means by as they are is that things knowledge and vision of things as they are I mean knowledge and vision of the emptiness of things that's how they are the illusory nature of things Mm, seeing and understanding that not to get technical or grammatical but Buddha is also the past participle of become so you could also say it's knowledge and visions of how things have become in other words like the little projection of the wolf how that is getting projected the process of fabrication of concoction Knowledge and vision of how things are dependently arisen. So, when the Buddha talks about liberation, he's talking about this. He's talking about liberation from seeing and understanding this. This is what liberates at the deepest level. And there's a, I can't remember where I saw it, but a little sort of, um, little poster. And it says, liberation comes from being where you are. But there is no where you are. It can't come from that because it doesn't mean anything. So, how am I going to see and understand? How is that going to happen? How can I make this journey? How do we make this journey? I'm just picking up the fourth of these possibilities, like I said, the fabrication, uh, seeing the fabrication. Maybe meditation can be training, training ways of looking, ways of being with things, ways of relating and being aware of things that begin to reveal how things get projected, how they dependently arise. And maybe that's what meditation is. We're learning different ways of looking and seeing how each way of looking Shapes a different reality that I perceive, maybe I can learn to project and fabricate less and less, take away all the assumptions that are feeding into the fabrication more and more and more, and as I say, this doesn't we don't then arrive at some basic experience that's that's not what will happen. some basic sound or sight or Emotion, this is what's happening, this is how it is. So meditation as practicing ways of looking that shatter the projection of reality, that shatter the illusion of independent existence. I'm learning how to look. And even metta, for example, is something like that. Because I move through different mind states, And I begin to see, like I said before, which is real? What's real here? What happens to my whole perception of things as the meta gets really, really deep? Say we were on a one or two month meta retreat. This would begin to be really, really strong. What is the reality? Because my whole sense of things goes through all kinds of different perceptions here. Words like fabricate, concoct, They're really good words because they have in English um, the notion of building something, but also the notion of something not quite real. We say it's a fabrication, it's a concoction. So there's the implication in it that it's not real, which is good, so it really points to the meaning here. But does it make things worthless that they're fabricated? Everything is fabricated. Does that mean everything is worthless? And some uh, streams of Buddhist teaching basically go there. All this is samsara, and basically the job is to get out of all this by seeing the illusion. All this is kind of worthless. It's just body and... But does it have to be such a duality? Maybe fabricating things, concocting things, is not the problem. The problem is ignorance that they are fabricated. And if I know that the nature of things is magical, magical, if I know that everything is magical and the process of making things is is magic, then I might be free in a world of magic. And I'm free to create and conjure this and that. And I don't have to denigrate things. So this is a journey. Like I said, it's a journey. It's a, um, we, you can see this at the simplest level. Just when, for instance, you're really, really upset about something. And then after a while you get less upset. And you, you compare the views of self and the thing... And when there was upset and when there isn't upset and you begin to see what's real here and question and then it just goes deeper and you don't even need to meditate to see that much and, and that basic thread of insight just goes deeper and deeper and deeper and more and more subtle and the understanding evolves, it can evolve and this is, is the best thing it's the best thing to understand Seeing, understanding this way, it, it, makes a, it makes an immense freedom possible in life. And also, as I say, the freedom to play with the magic, the freedom to take on this view or that view, to look this way and that way, without getting locked in, to play in the realm of magic, to play in the realm of self-view. And it's available to us. It's it's something that is available to us as human beings if we want it. So no one, I'm not saying, and I don't think anyone has ever said, you have to, you have to do this. You have to understand this, you have to explore this. So I'm not saying that, and I don't think the Buddha said that either. And I'm very aware of how the inner critic can come in hearing stuff like this but it's available to us and if the heart is called if there's something that's spoken to here of a deeper mystery in life of a deeper reality we could say if it's called then it's available and it's there for us so there's something for the heart and it can sound abstract but it's something for the heart